Hey everybody, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. In tonight's 35th session of our exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth, we're actually going to finish up the Fellowship of the Ring. I know, it's been promised for the longest time, and I'm inadvertently moving everything around now as I try and share my screen with you. There we are. Hey, everything seems to be working. It's all good. Hello to Princess Ostrich and to Skipa, who was joining us at some ungodly hour from the UK, trying to distract herself from her, her studies and her reading. I respect that enormously, Skipa. Good for you. We've got Angela and we've got Shane and we've got Sam. Joseph is joining us for his first ever there and back again. I hope that you enjoy this, uh, Joseph. I hope that this is uh, a fun evening for you here tonight. We're going to talk a lot about Boromir tonight. We're going to talk a lot about Sam, uh, about Frodo's choice, about Sam's head rather than his legs. And we're going to talk about where the Fellowship is going to go from here. I mean, such as the Fellowship is. We're also, of course, going to be talking about the Fellowship of the Ring as a whole. Last week, we ran a little shy. We were ambitious here in our attempts to get through the last two chapters of the Fellowship of the Ring last week. So we're going to cover the end of the Fellowship of the Ring and then hopefully have some time for uh, some Q&A at the end. We'll see how that works out, you guys, because I think we're going to move a little more slowly through these slides than we normally would, simply because the last part of the Fellowship of the Ring is arguably, I think, the richest in the entire volume so far. I think in the entire book so far, in the entire volume. I think that uh, our exploration of Boromir's motivation, our exploration of Frodo's task and the, the means by which he approaches that task, our exploration of Sam's heroism and his loyalty and his fealty to Frodo, We've got a lot to cover, is what I'm saying. So we may not do many slides tonight, but we will go deep into those slides, and that, I think, will be its own reward. Um, let me cancel the slide that you can see here in front of you so that you can see me full screen here, for those of you who are joining me live, because I have a couple of things to share with you. The first is this. This is kind of uh, crossing the streams here a little bit. Let me hold this up. I have some tea here tonight in a genuinely fantastic uh, disappearing, reappearing Marauder's Map mug sent to me by the wonderful Leslie McAdoo-Gordon. Thank you so much, Leslie. This thing is fantastic. It is a black mug upon which the Marauder's Map appears when you fill it with a hot beverage, such as some tea, some fine British tea here to keep me warm this evening. The other piece of business that we must address, of course, before we get into our reading tonight, is that tonight is Becca Eller's birthday. Becca is with us here in the YouTube chat, uh, in the YouTube chat, excuse me, in the Crowdcast chat, as she so often is, giving us her wisdom, giving us the benefit of her enormous empathy and compassion. Becca is one of my absolutely favorite people in the world. So if you are joining me here live tonight, I urge you to wish Becca a very happy birthday. And if you are not, I urge you to go and find her on Twitter at the underscore Becca Eller, which is Actually rather lovely because when Becca Eller runs together, it kind of looks like, uh, you know, Bicalier or something. It looks, it looks, uh, looks lovely. Uh, Bicalier. Bicalier, I suppose it looks like, which makes me think of The Beguiler, which I think is also very, very appropriate. You should also check out Becca's podcast, uh, Retold, a history podcast, which is just fantastic. Um, it's, it's very, very good and smart stuff, and I enjoy it a great deal. So, Becca, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for being with us throughout this entire journey, and happy birthday to you. Let's get into our discussion then tonight. We're actually going to begin by going back. We're going to take a look uh, very briefly at the last slide that we discussed last time. Let me uh, share that with you here as we look at the stage being set for the final part of the Fellowship of the Ring. When they had eaten, Aragorn called the company together. The day has come at last, he said. The day of choice which we have long delayed. What shall now become of our company that has traveled so far in Fellowship? Shall we turn west with Boromir and go to the wars of Gondor? Or turn east to the fear and shadow, 
Or shall we break our fellowship and go this way and that as each may choose? Whatever we do must be done soon. We cannot long halt here. The enemy is on the eastern shore, we know, but I fear that the orcs may already be on this side of the water. There was a long silence in which no one spoke or moved. Well, Frodo, said Aragorn at last, I fear that the burden is laid upon you. You are the bearer appointed by the council. Your own way you alone can choose. In this matter I cannot advise you. I am not Gandalf. Though I have tried to bear his part, I do not know what design or hope he had for this hour, if indeed he had any. Most likely it seems that if he were here now, the choice would still wait on you. Such is your fate. Frodo did not answer at once. Then he spoke slowly. I know that haste is needed, yet I cannot choose. The burden is heavy. Give me an hour longer and I will speak. Let me be alone. Aragorn looked at him with kindly pity. Very well, Frodo, son of Drogo, he said. You shall have an hour and you shall be alone. We shall stay here for a while, but do not stray far or out of call. Frodo sat for a moment with his head bowed. Sam, who had been watching his master with great concern, shook his head and muttered, Play it as a pikestaff it is, but no good Sam Gamgee put in his spoke just now. Presently, Frodo got up and walked away. And Sam saw that while the others restrained themselves and did not stare at him, the eyes of Boromir followed Frodo, Frodo intently until he passed out of sight in the trees at the foot of Amon-Han. So we talked a little last time. Yes, name-dropping Drogo, says Joseph. Isn't that interesting? We've talked before about the way in which Aragorn modulates his delivery, the way in which he modulates his register. He ascends here to a more mythic, heroic register. It is not Frodo Baggins who sits before him, but Frodo, son of Drogo, ring-bearer. The decision rests with him, as it always has. And I've had some correspondence over the course of the last week about uh, the Fellowship's plan at this point. What was Gandalf's original plan? What was Gandalf thinking when they were aiming to to cross the Misty Mountains originally? When they were going to cross at the Red Horn Gate? When they were going to cross Carathras and come down into the eastern lands from the Misty Mountains directly? And then, what was his plan after they had changed their mind and decided to go down through the Mines of Moria? What did Gandalf intend? Well, the answer seems to be that Gandalf intended this, this exactly, that ultimately the fellowship was going to break. The fellowship was never uh, assembled with the intent of, of going to Mount Doom. That was never the purpose of the fellowship. The fellowship's purpose was to escort Frodo as far as they were able. But other tasks await them. There is a war to be fought on many fronts, and not everyone can move with Frodo. We, I think, particularly those of us who have kind of come up in the shadow of Tolkien, those of us who are more familiar with the mechanics and the dynamics of fantasy fiction through those who inherited the mantle of J.R.R. Tolkien and those who sought to emulate his tone and his register and his style, may think of the Fellowship as our adventuring party, right? This is our D&D &D party. We've got our, I guess, capital R Ranger and our lowercase r Ranger. We've got our Dwarf Fighter. We've got our Human Fighter. We had our Wizard. We've got our thieves are rogues in the form of the hobbits we've got our party here and the first rule of DD is that you don't split the party but that is not what the fellowship was ever intended to be the fellowship was never supposed to go to the cracks of doom that was frodo's task and frodo's task alone remember back in the council of elrond it was his decision to take the ring to, to undertake this dangerous task it was his decision at the beginning of the book to pick up the ring in the first place and to go as far as rivendell to to undertake the beginning of this task so this is the third time that frodo has been called upon to make this choice and the mechanics of this choice the primacy of this choice the respect that is paid to him as ring bearer 
seems to be representative not just of Frodo's special special privilege, his special burden here as the bearer of the One Ring, but also recognition that such things are meant, perhaps. And we'll talk a little more about, about fate and, and predestination right at the end of tonight's session. So this is where our, our paths diverge now. One way or another, things are going to be different. Either we all head into the East and we face Fear and Shadow, capital F, capital S, or we head more to the West and we go to Gondor and we throw ourselves into that war as Boromir counsels, or we split and each party member will, will follow their own heart in the pursuit of their own goal. We'll see how that works out for them as we go ahead. Nine to face the nine riders, says Shane, and only five of the nine actually face them in the end. Yes, yes. In a sense, that's true. In another sense, all nine are opposing the riders. The marshaled force of the riders is not, I think, the primary threat which the Fellowship was intended to counter. It is more a thematic threat, right? There are nine forces of darkness, forces of the shadow moving in the world, and so were enkindled nine forces of light, nine agents of light to go out into the world. And we'll talk, obviously, as we move into the much more fractured structure of the two towers about how those stories diverge and then are reunified right at the end of the story. Yeah. Let's see. Let's split up. No, says Alan. Yeah. Oh, we could take one of the hobbits as bards. That works fine with halflings. Now it says Princess Ostrich. Yes, okay, cool. So not all rogues, sometimes just, just bards too. That, that works very well, yes. Good. So Frodo slips away, and our fellowship, the fellowship, watches him leave, or rather studiously doesn't watch him leave, except for Boromir. Sam notes that Boromir's eyes stick with Frodo until Frodo has slipped between the trees at the foot of Amon Hen. Now let's take a look at... Um, here we are at really the meat of tonight's discussion. This is our first encounter with Boromir. Suddenly he awoke from his thoughts. A strange feeling came to him that something was behind him, that unfriendly eyes were upon him. He sprang up and turned, but all that he saw to his surprise was Boromir, and his face was smiling and kind. I was afraid for you, Frodo, he said, coming forward. If Aragorn is right and orcs are near, then none of us should wander alone, and you least of all. So much depends on you. And my heart, too, is heavy. May I stay now and talk for a while since I have found you? It would comfort me. Where there are so many, all speech becomes a debate without end, but two together may perhaps find wisdom. You are kind, answered Frodo, but I do not think that any speech will help me, for I know what I should do, but I am afraid of doing it, Boromir. Afraid. Boromir stood silent. Roros roared endlessly on. The wind murmured in the branches of the trees. Frodo shivered. Suddenly Boromir came and sat beside him. "'Are you sure that you do not suffer needlessly?' he said. "'I wish to help you. You need counsel in your hard choice. Will you not take mine?' "'I think I already know what counsel you would give, Boromir,' said Frodo. "'And it would seem like wisdom but for the warning of my heart.' "'Warning? Warning against what?' said Boromir sharply. "'Against delay. Against the way that seems easier. Against refusal of the burden that is laid on me. Against... Well, if it must be said, against trust in the strength and truth of man. Yet that strength has long protected you far away in your little country, though you knew it not. I do not doubt the valor of your people. But the world is changing. The walls of Minas Tirith may be strong, but they are not strong enough. If they fail, what then? We shall fall in battle valiantly. Yet there is still hope they will not fail. No hope while the ring lasts, said Frodo. This is where it begins. 
How is Boromir not in a trench coat right now, says Becca? He's being so weird. And Joseph notes, never give advice in Middle-earth, right? The giving of counsel. Boromir is volunteering counsel when we have spent this entire volume establishing the fact that the wise do not give counsel. The wise trust in the order of things. Gildor refuses to give counsel. Glorfindel refuses to give counsel. Elrond refuses to give counsel. Even the Lady Galadriel gives scant counsel. The wisest of all of Middle-earth refused to counsel Frodo on his task here. But Boromir, well, Boromir, he has opinions. He has a thing or two to say about what is going on right now. We must parse a lot of this relatively carefully, I think, because there is simply so much going on in this passage. Suddenly he awoke from his thoughts. A strange feeling came to him that something was behind him, that unfriendly eyes were upon him. Am I the only one that is thinking of Gollum in this moment? Am I the only one that is remembering that, that, that Gollum has been following them carefully since leaving Moria, since before Moria, that Gollum has been pursuing them? And then we get that juxtaposition. He sprang up and turned, but all he saw to his surprise was Boromir and his face was smiling and kind. And it is very easy for those of us who have read this book before to anticipate Boromir's next move, but we mustn't. There is no reason here in the text to to kind of anticipate Boromir's turn. Rather, that turn will play out right in front of us. I don't think that it is fair to say at this point that a shadow has fallen on Boromir's heart. There are beginnings there, certainly. There are hints of what may come, but Boromir seems to be completely sincere at this point. His face is smiling and kind, even to Frodo's augmented senses. You know, we had a, a beat with this back in, in Lothlorien when Galadriel's talking about the fact that Frodo can perceive things that others can't because of his connection to the ring, because of his possession of the ring. He could see the ring upon her finger, the, the elven ring of power upon her, her finger, when Sam could not. Frodo is capable, as we will see in just a few short slides time, as we will see, Frodo is capable of discerning in a way that true mortals, or at least those mortals who have not come under the sway of the ring, cannot. So here, there's no reason to believe that Boromir is in any way a threat to Frodo. He's arguing his case, certainly, and we can anticipate the argument of that case. He clearly has an agenda. We know that from, from back in the camp, but he has not yet fallen to temptation. He is not yet perhaps even feeling the same temptation. Now he's just arguing as a man of Gondor would. And I think that the narrative instructs us to read it that way. Something malign is behind Frodo, and when he turns, it is Boromir, smiling and friendly, and everything is fine. I was afraid for you, Frodo, he said, coming forward. If Aragorn is right and orcs are near, then none of us should wander alone, and you least of all, so much depends on you. And you least of all, Colon, so much depends on you. So often in Tolkien... We can infer a great meaning from simple punctuation. The colon that, that Boromir uses to connect those two thoughts, you least of all, so much depends on you. He isn't worried about Frodo, <clears throat> excuse me, primarily because Frodo is so vulnerable, uh, because Frodo is weak or in any other sense, you know, uh, more exposed to, to the malevolence of orcs than any other member of the Fellowship, though that is almost certainly true. Uh, besides, you know, the other hobbits, Frodo certainly couldn't stand against an orc in the way that Boromir or Legolas or Gimli or Aragorn could. But Boromir here is already tipping his hand. You least of all, so much depends on you, and my heart too is heavy. Where there are so many, all speech becomes a debate without end, calling back to the Council of Elrond, but two together may perhaps find wisdom. Yeah, says Frodo. Yeah, that may be true. 
but I don't think that wisdom is going to come to me. I don't think that speech is going to help me. I know what I should do, but I'm afraid of doing it. Afraid. Frodo has, in a sense, already made his decision. But now he is thrust into a immediate conflict that crystallizes that decision, that is going to force him not just to engage with it, right? He, he already understands the parameters of this decision, but he is going to be forced into the choice. The choice is going to be made all the more stark to him, which may in its own way be somewhat eucatastrophic. That Frodo is here facing facing open conflict, open hostility, is going to be dealing with Boromir, a man who is, what does it say, 10 times stronger than he is? And yet, in the end, this moment of betrayal will turn to good cause. You know, this will be a positive moment, ultimately, for Frodo, because it crystallizes the decision that he has to make. I love the, um, I love the moment of silence here. Boromir stood silent. Roros roared endlessly on. The wind murmured in the branches of the trees. Frodo shivered. This moment of silence. Here on Amonhan, this, this place of relative peace and relative sanctity. Yes, it's the frontier of war, but it is also a place that has felt the touch of the Numenorean kings. I mean, this is a, a well, I was going to say hallowed place. That's not quite true. That's, that's a complicated word when we're talking about Tolkien, but it is an important place. It is a special place. But here, he isn't free from what? What is causing this silence? What is causing this moment of, of uncertainty from Frodo? What is it that gives Frodo the sense that there is something behind him? Well, that, I think, is his expanded ability to sense. That is the influence of the ring over him. He can sense the motivation now. He can sense the, the movement of something beneath the surface. This is something that is, is haunting him, stalking him at this point, even though it comes in the guise of a friend. I think I already know what counsel you would give, Boromir, said Frodo, and it would seem like wisdom, but for the warning of my heart. Warning, warning against what, said Boromir sharply. Okay, and then we're going to break down the warning of Frodo's heart here against delay, first off. If we go to Gondor, we're still ultimately going to have to go to the Crack of Doom. Like, ultimately, that is going to have to happen. The ring must still be destroyed. So, best case scenario, we go to Gondor, we somehow win whatever battle is taking place at, at, uh, at Minas Tirith right now. But the ring is still going to have to be destroyed. Note that, that Frodo here is never for a moment accepting what will be Boromir's argument. Well, we should use the ring. This is a, a fabulous opportunity. Frodo is not open to that at all, not from the beginning. Delay. Yes, we can go to Minas Tirith, but the ring will still have to be destroyed. We'll still have to go to Mount Doom. So why delay? Delay is only going to make it that much more dangerous. He does not believe that victory can be bought in Minas Tirith. Then, against the way that seems easier. Yeah, it's tempting, isn't it? Do we go alone onward into the dark, into the shadow and the fear, as Aragorn says? Or... Do we go to the greatest bastion of the strength of men on the surface of Middle-earth? Do we go among an armed host and there maybe find a little peace, maybe find a little rest, a little respite? Now, we've just come from Lothlorien, that is true, but the rest of elves is different from the rest of the mundane world. You know, the, 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 the restoration that you encounter is supernatural. It is of fairy. And there is a security that would come from being in the middle of Minas Tirith, sur surrounded by one of the great armies of the world, right? That would be a fantastic thing. <laughs> Here's a bard says, it's not just Frodo, though. Everyone has said to him, for the love of God, don't use the ring. True. 
it's true. And we'll call back to the Council of Elrond as we get there. Yes. Princess Ostrich says, yes, it's the big red button. It's just too damn tempting. Also true. And old Toby opines, elvish pillows are super soft. Yeah, they probably would be, wouldn't they? They'd probably be really, really comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. But still not quite the same as being surrounded by, you know, an actual army, by feeling as though you have uh, a force on your side. And I think, too, that the the sadness and decline of Lothlorien, right, the, the, the long defeat, the fighting of the long defeat that we discussed last time, I think that that, too, has perhaps worn a little on Frodo. He knows what must be done, but he also knows that it's hopeless. He knows that even if he wins, he's going to lose. Even if he wins, the world is going to change. He has taken the words of Galadriel at this point and, and internalized them. So he's fearful of delay. He's fearful of the way that seems easier, the seductive temptation of the easier path. Yes, I could go to comfort and security. And it's not the specific comfort and security that is troubling me. It is the temptation of that comfort and security. In our journey so far, the, <laughs> the temptations of the road have proved dangerous. The harder path has almost always been the right path. Against refusal of the burden that is laid on me. This carries us all the way back to the second chapter of this entire story, right? This carries us back to the fact that Frodo is the ring bearer. Bilbo gave it up, Frodo took it up, and now it is his. And that means that it is his decision to make. Now, this does perhaps sit a little... A little oddly, right? Because it wasn't so very long ago. It was, what, a, a week ago, a week and a half ago, that Frodo offered the ring to Galadriel. Just outright offered it to her. Hey, take this. I don't want it. It is too great for me to bear. And she said no. But now, he can't imagine passing it up. He can't imagine not even surrendering the ring to another, but shirking his duty to the ring. He knows what must be done. So what has changed for Frodo in that time? Is it Galadriel's word? Is it seeing what the temptation to Galadriel did to her or what it could potentially have meant? It seems as though it must. It seems as though her, her dark queen speech must have changed somehow Frodo's perception of the ring and the burden of the ring bearer. And then against, well, if it must be said, against trust in the strength and truth of man. Bold. Bold, Frodo. Because to date, you have basically known two men. Yeah, Barlamund Butterbur, okay, old Bill Fernie, sure, you've had some run-ins with other men, both good and bad, but you've known two men, and one of them is pretty much, Faramir excluded, the best man. One of them is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, the returning king of, of this unified kingdom of north and south. But the other is Boromir. And it's not that he's skeptical of an individual man, it would seem at this point, but the, the strength and truth of men. I don't think that he's saying individual men may fail me. I think what he's saying here is that the kingdom of men, Gondor itself, is not what he wants it to be, is not what he believes it to be, certainly not what, uh, not what Boromir believes it to be. So with all of that broken down... Um, Yet that strength has long protected you far away in your little country, though you, knew it, uh, though you knew it or not. I do not doubt the valor of your people, replies Frodo. Yes, your people are brave, but the world is changing. The walls of Minas Tirith may be strong, but they are not strong enough. If they fail, what then? So when Frodo says the strength and the truth of men, he means the strength, yes. But he seems to be meaning the truth, not in the sense of, of loyalty or even of honesty, but rather in the... the <laughs> the true nature of men. That is to say that, that, that 
it is it is strength. He is saying strength in two ways there. The strength and the truth, the the provable purpose, the provable utility of man. If the walls of Minas Tirith fall, then what? Well, then everything is lost. We shall fall in battle valiantly, that yet there is still hope that they will not fail. No hope, says Frodo, while the ring lasts. Let's talk about the ring. Um, let me see. The heart of them, says Heroes and Bars, which is a beautiful way of putting that. Yes, yes. I think under usual circumstances, Boromir might be totally okay if a bit overbearing, says Princess Ostrich. And I think that's actually legit, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> yes, that's 50% not so great as men go, says Leslie Skipper. If we're kind of, if we're averaging this out between Aragorn and Boromir, that's that's one pair. And then Barlaman Butterbur and Bill Fernie. Yes, I mean, you're right. That's a 50% loss rate as far as men go and the temptation of the shadow. So, yeah, not not wonderful. Yeah, good. Princess Ostrich says, I don't have something against your people. I just don't trust you, which is fair, except, well, we'll see how that pans out. This continues on directly. Ah, the ring, said Boromir, his eyes lighting. The ring. Is it not a strange fate that we should suffer so much fear and doubt for so small a thing? So small a thing? And I have only seen it for an instant in the House of Elrond. Could I not have a sight of it again? Frodo looked up. His heart went suddenly cold. He caught the strange gleam in Boromir's eyes, yet his face was still kind and friendly. It is best that it should lie hidden, he answered. As you wish. I care not, said Boromir. Yet may I not even speak of it? For you seem ever to think only of its power in the hands of the enemy, of its evil uses, not of its good. The world is changing, you say. Minas Tirith will fall if the ring lasts. But why? Certainly if the ring were with the enemy. But why, if it were with us? Were you not at the council? answered Frodo. Because we cannot use it, and what is done with it turns to evil. Boromir got up and walked about impatiently. So you go on, he cried. Gandalf, Elrond, all these folk have taught you to say so. For themselves they may be right. These elves and half-elves and wizards, they would come to grief perhaps. Yet, yet often I doubt if they are wise and not merely timid. But each to their own kind. True-hearted men, they will not be corrupted. We of Minas Tirith have been staunch long enough, uh, excuse me, staunch through long years of trial. We do not desire the power of wizard lords, only strength to defend ourselves, strength in a just cause, and behold... In our need, chance brings to light the ring of power? It is a gift, I say, a gift to the foes of Mordor. It is mad not to use it, to use the power the enemy has against him. The fearless, the ruthless, those alone will achieve victory. What could not a warrior do in this hour, a great leader? What could not Aragorn do? Or if he refuses, why not Boromir? The ring would give me power of command. How I would drive the hosts of Mordor and all men would flock to my banner. Boromir strode up and down, speaking ever more loudly. Almost he seemed to have forgotten Frodo, while his talk dwelt on walls and weapons and the mustering of men. And he drew plans for great alliances and glorious victories to be, and he cast down Mordor, and became himself a mighty king, benevolent and wise. Suddenly he stopped and waved his arms. This is the passage. This is the passage where we see more clearly than at any other point in the entire book the use of the ring, the function of the ring, the action of the ring. And we can track this through Boromir's speech. We can see exactly how it convinces him. This is as powerful a manifestation of the influence of the ring as we're going to get, but it matches the same rhythm of the other manifestations of the ring's power that we've seen. Remember back in the Shire, it would be okay to use the ring. Gandalf said not to use it, but I'm still in the Shire, and it's fine, and Bilbo used it lots of times. The rationalization 
that accompanies the desire for the ring, the justification that accompanies the desire for the ring. We see these things manifest now in Boromir's words and any moment now in his action. And it begins right at the beginning of this passage. The ring, said Boromir, his eyes lighting, the ring, is it not a strange fate that we should suffer so much fear and doubt for so small a thing, so small a thing, he repeats? And I have seen it for only an instant in the house of Elrond. Could I not have a sight of it again? He wants it. He wants to behold it. He wants to see it. Because those who desire the ring want to revel in its beauty. They want to, to, to glory in its luster. We've seen that again and again. We saw it with Gollum and we saw it with Bilbo and we've seen it with Frodo too. The ring itself is beautiful to those who are enchanted by the ring. Frodo looked up. His heart went suddenly cold. His heart went suddenly cold. This is the moment when Frodo starts to fear. Up until this point, he's been uncomfortable around Boromir because Boromir is not clearly the greatest dude and perhaps not clearly the greatest ally that Frodo could have. But up until this point, he's kind of accepted Boromir's friendship, his legitimacy, his honesty to a certain degree. But now something has changed. His heart goes suddenly cold. He catches the strange gleam in Boromir's, excuse me, in Boromir's eyes, yet his face was still kind and friendly. And he replies, no, it should stay hidden. As you wish. I care not, said Boromir, rationalizing it, right? Rationalizing his moment of desire. I want to see the ring. No, Boromir, you can't see the ring. Well, okay, who cares? I didn't even want to see it anyway. What? Whatever. Then, yet may I not even speak of it, for you seem ever to think only of its power in the hands of the enemy, of its evil uses, not its good. The world is changing, you say, and its terrible fall if the ring lasts. Were you not at the council, answers Frodo, because we cannot use it, and what is done with it turns to evil. Recap, for those of you who are coming in late, you can't use the ring. Bad things happen. Gandalf told us that in the second chapter of this book. Elrond told us that and told Boromir that at the Council of Elrond. Then Galadriel repeated it in Lothlorien. Using the ring is a bad idea. But Boromir has already had this opinion, right? He's already had this as an as a element of his strategy to beat the Dark Lord, to drive back Sauron and the host of Mordor. This has always been Boromir's perspective on the ring. It's a weapon, so why not use it. It is a great power, so why not use it? He hasn't been listening. He doesn't understand the nature of that power, the corruptive nature of that power. So Frodo recaps for him, were you not at the council? We can't use it. What is done with it turns to evil. And then he gets up and he starts walking and he's not talking to Frodo anymore. Who is he talking to? Boromir addresses here himself. And we see exactly that pattern, that, that, that chain of rationalization that we have seen before. Gandalf said not to use the ring, but I'm still in the Shire, and Bilbo used it all the time, and I could probably use it, and it'll probably be perfectly safe, and everything's fine. We're about to see that again with Boromir. So you go on, he cried. Gandalf, Elrond, all those folk have taught you to say so. Ha, <laughs> Frodo, you don't know what you're talking about. Let me, <clears throat> capital M, mansplain this to you, Frodo. You have been taught to say that, but you don't really understand. Gandalf and Elrond, wizards, please. Wizards and elves and half-elves, they're not true men. They're not real people. They're corrupt anyway and weird and magic and Lembus. Are you kidding me? Lembus? That's not real food, you guys. Boromir here is othering the wise. He is drawing a distinction and kind of using this kind of an ad hominem attack, I suppose, upon those people who have counseled Frodo to guard and protect the ring. For themselves, they may be right. Boromir concedes it. No, okay, okay. If you use the ring, it will turn to evil. Yeah, okay. They've said that. 
I'm not sure that I believe them, but okay, let's acknowledge that they believe themselves and they may be right for themselves. If a wizard uses it, if an elf uses it, if a half-elf uses it, yeah, they would come to grief perhaps, yet often I doubt if they are wise and not merely timid. Okay, maybe if they use the ring it will turn to evil, but maybe they're not wise, they're scared. Maybe they're just scared. But you know what? Each to his own kind. That's, that's, that's fine. If they're weak as well as foolish, that's fine. True-hearted men, they will not be corrupted. We of Minas Tirith have been staunch long through, years, uh, through long years of trial. Yeah, elves, they fall all the time. Wizards corrupted left and right. No evidence for this, by the way. No evidence for this at all. And Boromir is not remembering his history books. Because, of course, we true-hearted men, true-hearted men fell. Numenor fell. That is where his kingdom came from. They were corrupted by greed, by the desire for immortality. Everything that Boromir has ever known, the kingdom into which he pours so much of his loyalty, so much of his fealty, so much of his belief and his faith, is the wreckage of something that fell due to the corruption of man. We do not desire the power of wizard lords. Look, we're not wanting to make ourselves a new Dark Lord. We don't want to be a Dark Queen like Galadriel would be. We don't want to, you know, crush the world beneath our heel as Gandalf apparently would if he wore the ring. We don't want power. That's not what we're about. We just want the strength to defend ourselves. Strength in a just cause. Look, our cause is just and we want to defend ourselves. How could using the ring to do that be bad? We're not interested in conquest. We're not interested in imperialism. We don't want to go out and conquer the world. We just want to defend that which is just, that which is good. We want to protect everything that Gondor stands to protect, including, by the way, Frodo, implicit here in this paragraph, but mentioned in the previous slide, including, by the way, Frodo, your own little country of the Shire. That's what we want to do. How bad could it be? And behold, in our need, chance brings to light the, the ring of power. This is magnificent. We're desperate. We're up against it. Minas Tirith is going to fall, yes. And then in our hour of need, chance chance, just random happenstance, brings us the ring of power. And look at this turn. Look at how fast this is. And behold, in our need, chance brings to light the ring of power. It is a gift, I say, a gift to the foes of Mordor. Is it chance or is it a gift? Is it lucky or was it intended? Because those two things can't really coexist, Boromir. But still, he is rationalizing, right? He's, he's finding the arguments to support his case. It is mad not to use it, to use the power of the enemy against him. The fearless, the ruthless, these alone will achieve victory. And if we weren't already worried about Boromir at this point, the ruthless, the ruthless Boromir, that's who you want to be in charge? Okay, okay, those alone will achieve, uh, will achieve victory. What could a warrior do in this hour, a great leader? What could not Aragorn do? Or if he refuses, why not Boromir? The ring would give me power of command. Look at this turn. <laughs> what could not a warrior do in this hour? A great leader. Okay. If a warrior had the ring, if a leader had the ring, what could they not accomplish? They could do anything. They could save the day. Aragorn could save the day. And if Aragorn won't, well, why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't I do it? And Boromir here kind of playing his hand a little bit. We've been talking about Boromir's understanding of Aragorn and his kind of appreciation for who Aragorn is, the returning king here. Boromir 
clearly understands that. Boromir clearly respects Aragorn at this point. He sees who Aragorn is, and that's a very, you know, powerful, uh, powerful factor in their relationship at this point. What could not a warrior do in this hour, a great leader? What could not Aragorn do, or if he refuses, why not Boromir? What could we accomplish if we work together? The ring would give me power of command. Command with a capital C. Well, we've moved here, haven't we? We've moved from the abstract into the specific. What could not a great warrior do? A leader. Give the leader, uh, give a great man, a, a true-hearted man the ring, and we could accomplish great things. In fact, give me the ring. Give me the ring, and it would give me the power of command. How I would drive the hosts of Mordor, and all men would flock to my banner. And there we see the final turn of the ring's corruptive influence. What does the ring do ultimately? What does evil do ultimately? It drives us to dominate others. A great warrior, a great leader, has by natural virtue the gift of command. Aragorn leads because he is king. Boromir leads because he is, at his best, a great man. But the corruptive influence of the ring has grown on him to such a point now that he's not thinking about leadership. He's not thinking of kingly virtue, to go back to all of our many discussions on that topic previously. He's not thinking about that. He's thinking about command. He's thinking about the men flocking to his banner. And then as he goes into his, uh, into his little strategy here, uh, almost he seemed to have forgotten Frodo and his talk dwelt on walls and weapons, the mustering of men. He drew plans for great alliances and glorious victories to be. And then ultimately, of course... He cast down Mordor and became himself a mighty king, benevolent and wise. Well, of course, benevolent and wise, because instead of a dark lord, you will have a dark queen, and all will love me and despair. All will love Boromir and despair. This, by the way, is one of the things that makes me wonder about the working of the ring on Galadriel in that moment. Well, we talked a little about that at Lothlorien. We'll maybe circle back around to, uh, to the working of the ring on um on uh, on those who come near it, I guess. Let me see. Yes, as Jared says, Boromir would use the ring to replace and become the next Dark Lord, which is exactly what Gandalf said would happen, is exactly what Galadriel said would happen. This is the pattern of the ring. This is what it wants. Good. Um, let me scroll back through the chat. Commanding power to attract enemies and repel, uh, to attract allies and repel enemies, says Seastar. What then would happen? Yeah, exactly, right? He throws down Mordor. He becomes the replacement. Yes. Yes, as Sam says, Boromir with the ring would be the new overlord over the race of man. Yes. Good. Good. This is interesting. Heroes and Bard says, I feel like Alexander Hamilton and Boromir would have a lot in common. Huh. Huh. You know, it's funny, we talked about Hamilton and the Lord of the Rings last week here on There and Back Again, and apparently this is just going to be a recurring theme. I need to give that more thought. I, I probably just need to go on a Twitter screed about that and uh, and, and see what I can figure out. Yes. Um, good. Skipa says, I, I, get the, I, I get the feeling, I guess, is, is what Skipa's aiming for, that since he is talking himself into it in this speech, it's as if he hasn't gotten this far in his thoughts before, which I think is completely true, Right. We who have read this book before, or we who have seen the movie, are skeptical of Boromir from the beginning, because this is what happens. But it's clear that this is happening now. His argument when he comes to Frodo first here on Amonhan is not, hey, give me the ring. Give me the ring. I will drive back the host of Mordor. You don't even have to worry about it. That's not his argument. His argument is, well, let's talk about it. 
Let's let's see what we can do. Can I see it, by the way? Well, I don't I don't want to see it. It's fine. I, nobody needs to see it. But, you know, we should probably talk about it and talk about the uses to which it could be put. Are you kidding? You're just going to destroy it? Here he is working through this apparently for the first time. Yeah. Um, and Joseph says, we should get one of those scarce heroes that Gandalf couldn't find at the beginning of The Hobbit. They could totally take the ring. I always wonder about that. Yes, I always wonder. Was he referring to other men of the Dúnedain? Is that it? Was he thinking of, of others of... of Aragorn's sort, I suppose. Maybe, maybe, yeah. Um, good. Yes, as Heather Stage says, this I think encapsulates it rather, uh, rather beautifully. I think are we circling back around to our previous thought too? Perhaps we are, but it has been lost in the mists of time. Uh, Heather says it is too easy to judge Boromir by his behavior here. Yes, it is too easy. He is clearly under the influence of the ring. And I guess we're not going to get an opportunity to talk about Boromir. And in his final moments this week, we'll have to postpone that until next week. But when we do, I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about Boromir's final moments because they are absolutely crucial. It is very easy to misread, to, to kind of gloss Boromir's experience and miss the point of Boromir's experience. But we will definitely get to that next week. Yes. Um, yeah, good. That's fair. Uh, Heroes and Bards also says it's not like this conversation is miles away from the point he the point he made at the council. True, but he is taking it further here. Let's keep uh, pushing on here. And they tell us to throw it away, he cried. I do not say destroy it. That might be well if reason could show any hope of doing so. It does not. The only plan that is proposed to us is that a halfling should walk blindly into Mordor and offer the enemy every chance of recapturing it for himself. Folly! Surely you see it, my friend. He said, turning now suddenly to Frodo again. You say that you are afraid. If it is so, the boldest should pardon you. But it is not really your good sense. But is it not really your good sense that revolts? No, I am afraid, said Frodo, simply afraid. But I am glad to have heard you speak so fully. My mind is clearer now. Then you will come to Minas Tirith, cried Boromir. His eyes were shining and his face eager. You misunderstand me, said Frodo. But you will come. At least for a while, Boromir persisted. My city is not far now. It is a little further from there to Mordor than from here. We have been long in the wilderness, and you need news of what the enemy is doing before you can make a move. Come with me, Frodo, he said. You need rest before your venture. If go, you must. He laid his hand on the hobbit's shoulder in friendly fashion, but Frodo felt the hand trembling with suppressed excitement. He stepped quickly away and eyed with alarm the tall man, nearly twice his height and many times his match in strength. Why are you so unfriendly, said Boromir. I am a true man, neither thief nor tracker. I need your ring, that you know now. But I give you my word that I do not desire to keep it. Will you not at least let me make trial of my plan? Lend me the ring. No, no, cried Frodo. The council laid it upon me to bear it. It is by our own folly that the enemy will defeat us, cried Boromir. How it angers me. Fool, obstinate fool, running willfully to death and ruining our cause. If any mortals have claim to the ring, it is the men of Numenor and not Halflings. It is not yours, save by unhappy chance. It might have been mine. It should have been mine. Give it to me. Frodo did not answer, but moved away till the great flat stone stood between them. Come, come, my friend, said Boromir in a softer voice. Why not get rid of it? Why not be free of your doubt and fear? You can lay the blame on, you can lay the blame on me if you will. You can say that I was too strong and took it by force. For I am too strong for you, halfling, he cried, and suddenly he sprang over the stone and leapt at Frodo. His fair and pleasant face was hideously changed. A raging fire was in his eyes. So, here we get the next pivot. The ring should be 
put to use. In the hands of a man like Aragorn, or hey, a man like Boromir, it could devastate the hordes of Mordor. It could bring a new order to the world, a new wise and benevolent rule. And they tell us to throw it away. I do not say destroy it. That might be well if reason could show us any hope of doing so. It does not. Okay, it's not as though we're presented with two options here, two options of equal value. On the one hand, we might use the ring and save the world. On the other, we might destroy it. No, that's a false conflict. Because the choice to destroy it is foolish and is reckless to send one halfling into Mordor itself. One does not simply, etc., etc. This is his next point of justification. You say you are afraid. If, if it is so, the boldest should pardon you. But is it not really your good sense that revolts? You're afraid? Are you sure you're not worried that you're stupid? Are you sure you're not worried that this is a terrible, terrible plan? Is that not what you're feeling, Frodo, buddy of mine? No, says Frodo. Moreover, you have completely clarified my position. Thanks for that. But you will come at least for a while, Boromir persisted. My city is not far now. It is little further. You need rest before your venture. If go, you must. Making the argument that we just made, right? Frodo says, no, I'm fearful of delay. I'm fearful of going to Gondor and... Even with the temptation there, the temptation of the easy path, I have considered this. Frodo is not stupid. He has considered these alternatives, but he is fearful nonetheless. Or he is fearful in part, I guess, because of these things. No, no, says Boromir. This is the great plan. You come with me. It'll be fine. Okay, look, I get it. You don't want to give me the ring. Okay, lend me the ring. Let me, give, let me make a trial of my plan. Let me show you what I can do and what the world would be like, and then I'll give it back to you. I promise. I have no desire to keep your ring at all. Just give it to me for a little while, and I'll show you what I can do. No, no, cried Frodo. The council laid it upon me to bear it. It is by our own folly that the enemy will defeat us, cried Boromir. How it angers me. Fool, obstinate fool, running willfully to death and ruining our cause. If any mortals have claim to the ring, it is the men of Numenor and not halflings. It is not yours, save by unhappy chance. It might have been mine. It should be mine. Give it to me. The progression here is so swift. Remember on the previous slide? Now in our hour of need, chance has brought us the ring of power. This, it's a gift. It's a gift to us to use against the enemy. What good fortune is this? But now that has turned. If any mortals have claim to the ring, it is the men of Numenor, not halflings. It is not yours, save by unhappy chance. Now it is not a blessing that the ring has come to them. Now it is unhappy chance. That the, that the ring has come to Frodo specifically. It might have been mine. It should have been mine. Give it to me. This is the final three-beat encoded here, right? This is the final turn of Boromir's action. It might have been mine. It, it, it could as well have been mine. No, it should have been mine. It ought to have come to me. Give it to me. The outright demand there. Not lend it to me a while. Not, hey, this is the right course of action. Don't you agree, buddy of mine? No, give it to me. Frodo did not answer, but moves away. And now we get, again, a kind of uh, repetition here, uh, uh, a return to what Galadriel said, right? Galadriel was talking about uh, taking the ring Frodo, uh, from Frodo. And wouldn't it be fitting for the evil of the ring if she had taken it from him by force? But now he comes to her and offers it. And she could say with absolute honesty, no, no, no. I didn't take it. He gave it to me. He wanted me to take it. And now Boromir is trying the same trick, which again makes me wonder to what degree Galadriel was immediately under the influence of the ring in that moment back in Lothlorien, or to what degree she was aware of the potential influence of the ring might be a better way of putting it, right? But still, in this moment, Boromir 
tells Frodo, this is one of my favorite lines in the entire book. You can say I was too strong and took it by force, for I am too strong for you, halfling. Perfect. The ring now has, has claimed Boromir so thoroughly, so utterly, that he is driven to action. Now it isn't about rhetoric. Now it isn't about trying to charm uh, Frodo here. Now he just, he wants it completely. Um, and this is Boromir's Veruca salt face, says Joseph. I like that quite a lot. I like that quite a lot. Good, good. Um, oh, Nikki. Yeah, well, this is, this is interesting. Yes, uh, as Jared observes, yes, the second time Boromir has called the Finding of the Ring chance, yes. Again, calls back to his background with Denethor as his father, says Chris. He has that it should have been me attitude. Yeah, we're going to get plenty of opportunity to talk about Denethor and to talk a little about Faramir too. Though we are all but done with Boromir within the pages of this book, we're not done with Boromir. We're going to be I was going to say we're going to be able to, but actually we're going to be actively encouraged to reappraise Boromir. As I said, in next week's reading, that is going to be the most powerful moment of reappraisal that we will get uh, about Boromir on, on the subject of Boromir. But then we'll also get another perspective on Boromir when we when we move to Denethor and, and Faramir separately and together too later in the book. Yeah, good, good. Skiba says... Um, Yes, yes, it's not so simple. Boromir is falling under the influence of the ring. It's not selfishness, but desperation. It's tragic. Yes. Yes, it's, this is echoing some comments about him sliding to the, the dark side of the force. Yes, uh, from, from Sam and from Princess Ostrich here. Yes. Boromir isn't evil. He's human, says Angela. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Um, good. Yes, and Heroes and Bard says, it's fascinating the way the professor shows the way in which the ring can twist one's thoughts. This is... I mean, what strikes me every time that I read this passage, right? Because it is enormously evocative. It's enormously powerful. And we have been primed to see this coming from the beginning of the book. Once you know that this is going to happen, and certainly once you've read the book often enough that you are familiar with the trajectory of, of this, you know, encroaching corruption upon Boromir's character at this point, once you've recognized that the movement of this, the arc of this, you start to see it everywhere. You start to see it with Bilbo. You start to see it with Frodo. You start to see it with that moment of temptation with Gandalf, the wisdom of Elrond and the Council of Elrond, then Galadriel again, and now Boromir. It's, it's replicated again and again and again all throughout the Fellowship of the Ring. It is a, it's, it's a, and, and, and inverted too, because we get a, a powerful inversion of this with Tom Bombadil, of course, who isn't in any way interested in the Ring. Yeah, I, I love the skill with which this is laid out for us. I was hoping that we would get to some Q&A tonight, and it doesn't seem as though we're going to do that, yes. And then we get Faramir, and Boromir looks even worse by comparison, says Heroes and Bards. Yes, yes, um, possibly. I mean, anyone looks bad standing next to Faramir, but, you know, you do what we can. Yeah, good. Okay, let's keep pushing on. Oh, no, there was one other thing that I wanted to call out there before we move on from that slide, because I love it. So, um... Uh, where are we? Yes, uh, he laid his hand on the hobbit's shoulder in friendly fashion. Frodo felt the hand trembling with suppressed excitement. He stepped quickly away, eyed, the, eyed with alarm the tall man, nearly twice his height and many times his match in strength. Why are you so unfriendly, said Boromir. I am a true man, neither thief nor tracker. Neither thief nor tracker. To whom is Boromir referring? Well, he's definitely referring to Aragorn, right? Tracker, the rangers, the Dunedain. That's, you know... That's his his perspective on what the men of the North have become now. We've we've had kind of intimations of that, and though he has just finished kind of praising Aragorn, even to the extent that he acknowledges himself as a good alternative to Aragorn, right? That that in his justification, what could not Aragorn achieve 
or if not him, me. He goes to Aragorn first, as he should, because Aragorn is the king. I mean, Boromir's kind of, of, of respectful, uh, respectful is almost exactly the wrong word, mindful of that at this point might be a better way of putting that, right? But they, at this point, he comes back to Tracker. I am a true man, neither, neither thief nor Tracker. The thief, though, is interesting. To which thief could he be referring? Well, it seems to me that he's talking about Bilbo. He's heard by now the story of Bilbo, right? He's heard by now he who found the ring beneath the Misty Mountains. He's not a burglar and he's not a ranger. He's a true man. A connection there again between the hobbits and the man, yeah. Heroes and Bard says, dude, don't compare yourself to Aragorn. You will never, uh, that will never make you look good. Yes, yes, good, good. Chris says, I have to say, I wasn't a Faramir fan until recently. I think, it, I think I thought he was a resentful younger brother, but recently I've realized he's had a crappy life and is an incredible person. Yeah, you guys, we're, we're making Faramir t-shirts when we get there. We're making hashtag Team Faramir t-shirts. We're just, you know, we're, we're, we're doing it. And uh, brilliantly, we also meet uh, Aramir next week. So, you know, we're, we're pretty into good and interesting men uh, in the frame of the two towers. Yeah, good. Okay, let's push on and take a look at the next slide here. Miserable trickster, he shouted. Let me get my hands on you. Now I see your mind. You will take the ring to Sauron and sell us all. You have only waited your chance to leave us in the lurch. Curse you and all halflings to death and darkness. Then, catching his foot on a stone, he fell sprawling and lay upon his face. For a while he was as still as if his own curse had struck him down. Then suddenly he wept. He rose and passed his, tears, passed his hand over his eyes, dashing away the tears. What have I said? He cried. What have I done? Frodo, Frodo, he called. Come back. A madness took me, but it has passed. Come back. This is after, of course, Frodo has stripped away. Miserable trickster. Yes, I love this, as, as Skipa is calling out here. Miserable trickster. This is a golem line. Yes. This is perilously close to we hates it, we hates it forever, right? He's, he's absolutely under the sway of the ring. We have never seen a non-bearer of the ring, someone who has never touched the ring or interacted with it directly. We've never seen uh, someone who has been this distant from the ring be so thoroughly corrupted by it. This is a powerful moment. But then it passes. Catching his foot on a stone, he fell sprawling and lay upon his face. For a while he was as still as if his own curse had struck him down, then suddenly he wept. He comes to his senses, and it seems to be, well, let's debate that, I guess. Is this sincere? Is Boromir truly shaken from his ring-induced mania here? Or is this another plan to get Frodo to come back? What have I said? He cried. What have I done? Frodo, Frodo, he called, come back. A madness took me, but it has passed. Come back. Is this honesty from Boromir? Has he shaken it off in this moment? Or is he still under the sway of the ring and looking to get Frodo to, to come back from a sense of, of empathy and, and help? Yes, this is sincere, says Princess Ostrich. Crack on the head, unscrambled his brain, says old Toby. I don't think Boromir is that crafty, says Skipa. Jared says bumped his head and came to his senses. Maybe, is this unanimous? I think this is unanimous. Yeah, Heather Sage says the moment Frodo gets away and Boromir has lost a chance, he realizes what he's done. Maybe, maybe. But then we're going to get another moment. Let me... Um... <laughs> Oh, we can have a poll, says Princess Ostrich. You know what? We can. We can do that thing. Um, I don't know how long this takes to set up. Let me see. Uh, is Boromir sincere after he falls? Let's say that. 
and we'll just have two options, a big capital yes and a big capital no. Let's add that poll and you guys can vote on that poll here in the uh, here in the live chat and I will return to that. I'm going to close that window and not look at it. We'll come back to it later. Here's my question though. If he is in fact sincere, and let's move on to the next slide as we, as we go here. Oh, we're, of course, we're going to get to Frodo first. Then we're going to move back to uh, Aragorn and the camp of the Fellowship. Yes, I think the weeping signifies the release from the ring's influence, says Alan. Yes, the ring has lost its chance too, says Keeper. Yes, that's, that's true. Yeah. Mm. So this is uh, Frodo atop Amon Han. At first, he could see little. He seemed to be in a world of mist in which there were only shadows. The ring was upon him. Then, here and there, the mist gave way, and he saw many visions, small and clear as if they were under his eyes upon a table and yet remote. There was no sound, only bright living images. The world seemed to have shrunk and fallen silent. He was sitting upon the seat of seeing, on Amonhan, the hill of the eye of the men of Numenor. Eastward he looked into wide, uncharted lands, nameless plains and forests unexplored. Northward he looked, and the great river lay like a ribbon beneath him, and the misty mountains stood small and hard as broken teeth. Westward he looked, and saw the broad pastures of Rohan, and Orthanc, the pinnacle of Isengard like a black spike. Southward he looked, and below his very feet the great river curled like a toppling wave and plunged over the falls of Roros into a foaming pit. A glimmering rainbow played, played upon the fume, and Ithir Anduin he saw, the mighty delta of the river, and myriads of seabirds whirling like white dust in the sun, and beneath them a green and silver sea rippling in endless lines. But everywhere he looked... He saw the signs of war. The misty mountains were crawling like anthills. Orcs were issuing out of a thousand holes. Under the boughs of Mirkwood there was deadly strife of elves and men and fell beasts. The land of the Beornings was aflame. A cloud was over Moria. Smoke rose on the borders of Lorien. Horsemen were galloping on the grass of Rohan. Wolves poured from Isengard. From the havens of Harad, ships of war put to sea, and out of the east men were moving endlessly. Swordsmen, spearmen, bowmen upon horses, chariots of chieftains and laden wains, all the power of the Dark Lord was in motion. And turning south again, he beheld Minas Tirith. Far away, it seemed, and beautiful, white-walled and many-towered, proud and fair upon its mountain seat. Its battlements glittered with steel, and its turrets were bright with many banners. Hope leapt in his heart. But against Minas Tirith was set another fortress, greater and more strong. Thither, eastward, unwilling, his eye was drawn. It passed the ruined bridges of Asgiliath, the grinning gates of Minas Morgul, and the haunted mountains. And it looked upon Gorgoroth, the valley of terror in the land of Mordor. Darkness lay there under the sun. Fire glowed amid the smoke. Mount Doom was burning and a great reek rising. Then at last his gaze was held, wall upon wall, battlement upon battlement, black, Immeasurably strong, mountain of iron, gate of steel, tower of adamant, he saw it. Barad-dûr, fortress of Sauron. All hope left him. We get so many of these beautiful landscapes, and I've called many of them out to you as we've been moving through the pages of the Fellowship of the Ring, but we get perhaps no greater moment of interactive geography than this one. Frodo's experience here on Amonhan, on the seat of seeing the hill of the eye of the man of Numenor, as he looks forth, here shrouded in the mist of the ring. And that's important to catch that. He seemed to be in a world of mist in which there were only shadows. Colon, the ring was upon him. Again, you've got to watch that punctuation with Tolkien. The professor was extremely precise. Those are dependent and interrelated thoughts. He seemed to be in a world of mist in which there were only shadows. 
because the ring was upon him. These two things are inextricably connected. Yet here and there, the mist gave way and he saw many visions. Again, colon, clear and small as if they were under his eyes on a table and yet remote. There was no sound, only bright living images. The world seemed to have shrunk and fallen silent. He was sitting upon the seat of seeing on Amon Han. This is why he can see. This, it seems to me, is partly the magic of the ring, yes, but partly the magic of the men of Numenor. This is why it is called Amon Hen. This is why it is the seat of seeing. So what does he see? Well, he sees the empty lands of the east, and he sees the great river to the north. The misty mountains stood small and hard as broken teeth, which is a Beautiful image. I love that image. Westward, he sees Rohan and Orthanc, the pinnacle of Isengard like a black spike. The Tower of Saruman he sees from this great distance. Southward, he looks. And interestingly, too, he looks west and he sees I Rohan, Isengard, Orthanc. Does Frodo know what those things are? Were those on the maps back in Rivendell that he, he looked at? Does he just know that a tall black tower is likely to be Orthanc and therefore the area around it's likely to be Isengard? And well, it's probably Rohan between here and there. Is he referring to knowledge that is all his own? Well, it seems not. It seems not, because later we're going to get very specific names. It seems as though the seat of seeing imparts more knowledge than, than Frodo carries with him himself. He's not, just, uh, he's not just given the gift of sight, he's kind of given the gift of understanding. Horsemen were galloping on the grass of Rohan, wolves, uh, this is after we're getting the accounts of the wars, right? So let's, let's actually quickly note this. The Misty Mountains were crawling like anthills, orcs were issuing out of a thousand holes. Under the boughs of Mirkwood there was deadly strife of elves and men and fell beasts. The land of the Beornings was aflame. A cloud was over Moria. Smoke rose on the borders of Lorien. So he's looking back and he's looking around and he's seeing destruction and warfare everywhere. Horsemen were galloping on the grass of Rohan. Wolves poured from Isengard. From the havens of Harad, ships of war put out to sea and out of the east men we're moving endlessly and look now at how our register is modulated look now at how we begin to elevate our tone how it becomes more ornate more mythic more biblical almost from the havens of Harrod, ships of war put out to sea, and out of the east men were moving endlessly. Swordsmen, spearmen, bowmen upon horses, chariots of chieftains and laden wains. All the power of the Dark Lord was in motion. Then turning south again, he beheld Minas Tirith. Far away it seemed and beautiful. So we get this moment, we get this pause, this, this beat, this suspension of hostility. Far away it seemed beautiful. White-walled and many-towered Minas Tirith is still glittering in the sunshine. And then hope leapt in his heart. But against Minas Tirith was set another fortress, greater and more strong. Thither eastward, unwilling, his eye was drawn. Thither eastward, unwilling, his eye was drawn. This is not the normal narrative voice of the Lord of the Rings. This is pretty Baroque, even for the professor. Here he is really leaning into this, this mythic impact of Frodo's experience, which is appropriate because it seems as though Frodo's experience, Frodo's actual sense of the world around him, has been to some degree augmented, if not outright usurped, by the power of the men of Numenor. Here he is the inheritor of, of the magic of ages past. Here he is seeing far beyond his normal capability. Um, Thither eastward, unwilling his eye was drawn, it passed the ruined bridges of Osgiliath, the grinning gates of Minas Morgul, that's the Tower of Dark Sorcery that, that stands opposite uh, Minas Tirith, with, with the, the old ruined city of Osgiliath as a battlefield between the two. Um, and it looked upon Gorgoroth, the valley of terror in the land of Mordor. Darkness lay there under the sun. Darkness lay there under the sun. Fire glowed amid the smoke. Mount Doom was burning and a great, creek, a great reek rising. Okay. 
So we get these short, punchy sentences, right? Darkness lay there under the sun. Fire glowed amid the smoke. Mount Doom was burning and a great reek rising. Then at last his gaze was held. Wall upon wall, battlement upon battlement, black, immeasurably strong, mountain of iron, gate of steel, tower of adamant, he saw it. Barador, fortress of Sauron. All hope left him. Look at the way that the, the grammar of that sentence all but breaks apart. It becomes impressionistic. Then at last his gaze was held. Wall upon wall. Okay, I'm seeing wall upon wall. Battlement upon battlement. Okay, black. Okay, immeasurably strong. Mountain of iron, gate of steel, tower of adamant. This isn't a direct accounting of what Frodo is seeing. This is something far more impactful. This is, this is the experience of this place. Mountain of iron, gate of steel, tower of adamant, he saw it, Barador, fortress of Sauron. All hope left him. Four little words to wrap that up. The hope that is kindled in his breast. Hope leapt in his heart when he beholds Minas Tirith, right? He sees the glittering towers and, and the, the colonnades of, of Minas Tirith, but now that hope that was enkindled within him by the vision of, of, of the men of Gondor and their last holdout city, now it is dashed. All hope left him. What do we make of that? Oh, Skipa is leaving us. She's, she's having an early night. <laughs> well, have a good night, Skipa. I hope that everything goes well for you tomorrow with your studies. Yes. Um, let me see. As I scroll back through, I got very caught up there. Yes. There is ma magic lingering here. Yes. Good. Good. Um, as Nikki says, yes, good. Um, and the chat is scrolling out of my, out of my hands here. I do apologize. Yes. Excellent. Um, Oh, Angela says, if Lord of the Rings ever gets its own TV series like Game of Thrones, it must have a map intro too. I think it is because the Lord of the Rings exists that Game of Thrones has that map intro, that Game of Thrones has the maps that it has, yes. Okay, we must keep pushing on. We're just not going to get to any, uh, any Q&A today. I do apologize. Okay, this is the next beat. And suddenly he felt the eye. There was an eye in the dark tower that did not sleep. He knew that it had become aware of his gaze. A fierce, eager will was there. It leapt toward him, almost like a finger. He felt it searching for him. Very soon it would nail him down, knowing just exactly where he was. Amon Law, it touched. It glanced upon Tol Brandir. He threw himself from the seat, crouching, covering his head with his grey hood. He heard himself crying out, Never! Never! Or was it, Verily I come! I come to you! He could not tell. Then, as a flash from some other point of power, there came to his mind another thought. Take it off! Take it off! Fool! Take it off! Take off the ring! The two powers strove in him. For a moment, perfectly balanced between their piercing points, he writhed, tormented. Suddenly he was aware of himself again. Frodo, neither the voice nor the eye, free to choose, and with one remaining instant in which to do so. He took the ring off his finger. He was kneeling in clear sunlight before the high seat. A black shadow seemed to pass like an arm above him. It missed Amon-Hen and groped out west and faded. Then all the sky was clean and blue and birds sang in every tree. This is, yes, <laughs> Joseph says, and suddenly he felt the eye. You literally don't need to know anything about the story for that to feel creepy. That's absolutely true. So what happens here? Well, he is gazing, of course, at Barador, at the Black Tower of Sauron, where Sauron's eye is and it recognizes him. It can see him, and it begins, or it can, hmm, it can sense him. 
and now it starts searching for him. Now it gets awfully close to him. He heard himself crying out. Well, he can feel it first. He can feel the shadow. Amon Law, that's on the east side of the river. Remember uh, the, the, the breaking of the, of, the, of the lake here. The, 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 river, is, the river is carved. Um... <laughs> okay, we don't have time for the whole geography again. Go listen to last week's show. I'll give you the whole geography. But on the east side of the river, Amon's Law, the, the, the tower of hearing, is, is, is the seat of hearing is there. Then in the middle of the river, Tolbrandir. And then on the western edge of the river, Amon Han, where Frodo actually is right now, the seat of seeing. So we get first the one, then the other. And it's almost at Frodo when he hears these voices. He heard himself crying out, never, never. Or was it, verily I come, I come to you. Two voices contained within him. No, and... Yes. And note the difference in the language there. The, the punchy, relatively modern, never, never, or verily I come, I come to you. A deeper voice, a voice of, of submission, of, of obedience almost. But then another voice, a flash as from some other point of power, there came to his mind another thought, take it off, take it off, fool, take it off, take off the ring. I'm not going to talk more about that voice because we will be able to circle back around to that voice. But if you don't know who that voice is, think about who that voice is. Uh, think about the one word that is very distinctive in what the voice has to say, I suppose. <laughs> and it becomes pretty apparent who that voice is. Then the two powers strive in him. He's balanced between them. This beautiful sentence for a moment, perfectly balanced between their piercing points. He writhed, tormented. Suddenly he was aware of himself again. Suddenly he becomes again Frodo. And what is special about Frodo versus the voice or the eye? Frodo gets to choose. And he has still an instant to make that choice. He took the ring off his finger. He was kneeling in clear sunlight before the high seat. And the world is restored. The shadow passes over and the world is again restored. <laughs> Fool of a Baggins, says Shane. Yes, good. Yes, excellent. <laughs> yeah, we're just talking about it. Yeah, Karen's say yes, it's pretty clear in my reading. Perhaps it was. I kind of maybe slipped into it there. We'll talk about that in due course. It's just fine. Frodo rose to his feet. A great weariness was on him, but his will was firm and his heart lighter. He spoke aloud to himself. I will do now what I must, he said. This at least is plain. The evil of the ring is already at work, even in the company, and the ring must leave them before it does more harm. I will go alone. Some I cannot trust, and... Those I can trust are too dear to me. Poor old Sam and Mary and Pippin. Strider, too. His heart yearns for Minas Tirith, and he will be needed there. Now Boromir has fallen into evil. I will go alone. At once. He went quickly down the path and came back to the lawn where Boromir had found him. Then he halted, listening. He thought he could hear cries and calls from the woods near the shore below. They'll be hunting for me, he said. I wonder how long I've been away. Hours, I should think. He hesitated. What can I do? He muttered. I must go now or I never, or shall never go. I shan't get a chance again. I hate leaving them, and like this without any explanation, but surely they will understand. Sam will. And what else can I do? Slowly he drew out the ring and put it on once more. He vanished and passed down the hill less than a rustle of wind. We don't have a lot of time to talk about Frodo's choice here. He has that moment, right? He has that moment between the voice and the eye. He is once again Frodo, and that means that he can choose and what he chooses in that moment is to take off the ring. And the fact that it's a choice, it's not a moment of freedom, it's not a moment of respite, it's not uh, 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 the, the intrusion of, of some state of grace upon him, it is simply a moment of choice, and he chooses. 
But now having made that choice and having talked with Boromir and having been hunted by Boromir, now he knows what he has to do. I know now, I will now do what I must, he said. That at least is, uh, this at least is plain. The evil of the ring is already at work. Even in the company, the ring must leave before it does more harm. I will go alone. Some I cannot trust. Boromir, explicitly. Legolas and Gimli, implicitly, I guess. And those I can trust are too dear to me. Poor old Sam and Merry and Pippin. Strider, too. His heart yearns for Minas Tirith, and he will be needed there. Now Boromir has fallen into evil. I will go alone at once. And so he does deciding in the first instance, and of course, this is not accidental, right? I'm talking about the ways in which the entire volume is bracketed by Frodo's choice. Frodo's choice begins this quest, and Frodo's choice now transforms this quest. And it's the same choice. Remember Frodo's original intent when he was leaving the Shire? It was to leave alone. I mean, originally, it was to leave alone. Then he was going to take Sam with him, because Gandalf instructed him to do so. But it was just going to be Frodo and Sam. Frodo and Sam against the world. Luckily, Sam had been feeding information, this, this gentle conspiracy of Merry and Pippin, to go with him, to offer him extra support and extra comfort. And Gandalf, too, had been orienting things so that they're, they're aligned in the end with, with Strider as well, and go on to Rivendell, and so on and so forth. But Frodo has always had this impulse to do what must be done and do it himself. He would have gone by himself if that had been how things had worked out in the end. Yeah. Old Toby says, this is interesting. This is the first time that Frodo takes charge of his own quest. Before this, he was basically following Gandalf and Strider's lead. I think that's true to a certain degree. Yes, I think that's, um, I think there is a truth to that. It is now, I suppose, more that without counsel, without, uh, with the opposite of counsel, in effect, Frodo is now making this choice. Yeah. It's a very powerful moment. Let's cut back, though, to the rest of the Fellowship, what remains of the Fellowship. And this is why I have my question about Boromir, right? He's debating over which course is the most desperate, I think, said Aragorn. And well, he may. It is now more hopeless than ever for the company to go east, since we have been tracked by Gollum and must fear that the secret of our journey is already betrayed. But Minas Tirith is no nearer to the fire and the destruction of the burden. We may remain there for a while and make a brave stand, but the Lord Denethor and all his men cannot hope to do what even Elrond said was beyond his power, either to keep the burden secret or to hold off the full, the full might of the enemy when he comes to take it. Which way would any of us choose in Frodo's place? I do not know. Now, indeed, we miss Gandalf most. Grievous is our loss, said Legolas, and we must needs make up our mind without his aid. We cannot, uh, why cannot we decide and so help Frodo? Let us call him back and then vote. I should vote for Minas Tirith. And so should I, said Gimli. We, of course, were only sent to help the bearer along the road to go no further than we wished, and some of us is under any, and none of us is under any oath or command to seek Mount Doom. Hard was my parting from Lothlorien. Yet I have come so far, and I say this. Now we have reached the last choice. It is clear to me that I cannot leave Frodo. I would choose Minas Tirith. But if he does not, then I will follow him. And I too will go with him, said Legolas. They will be faithless now to say farewell. It would indeed be a betrayal if we all left him, said Aragorn. But if he goes east, then all need not go with him. Nor do I think that all should. Adventure is desperate. As much so for eight or for three as for two or for one alone. If you would let me choose, then I should appoint three companions. Sam, who could not bear it otherwise, and Gimli, and myself. Boromir will return to his own city, where his father and his people need him, and with him the others should go, or at least Mariadoc and Peregrine, if Legolas is not willing to leave us. I do love that Aragorn refers to them as Mariadoc and Peregrine. He's 
He's a good guy. He's a good guy, that Aragorn, it turns out. Elven harps and dwarven rap on the playlist, says Jared. Oh, this is for Becca proposing the boys need a road trip playlist. Yes, they absolutely do. Dwarven rap, I'm kind of into. Like, I tend to think of the dwarves with a lot of, like, you know, Misty Mountains, cold, heavy acapella, you know, kind of somber choral thing going on. But also, yeah, dwarven rap. It's either rap or it's like, you know, Finnish heavy metal, right? It's, it's like Icelandic heavy metal. It goes one of two ways there. So... Here we get the discussion that we were that, that we had here in the live session back at the beginning of, of this evening's reading. What should the fellowship do? What are their options? And why are they not compelled to go into the East? No oath lays upon them. That was not their task. Their task was to accompany Frodo on the road. And they've kind of accomplished that. They can now go no further. Now a decision has to be made. That is what is special about the Falls of Roros, right? Is that, that now they have to choose. They can't kind of mediate this path where they are heading both toward Gondor and toward Mordor. This is the moment of choice. Now the path splits. Now, giving us the title for tonight's session, Two Roads Diverged. The roads did not diverge in the Yellowwood, by the way, which would have made me very, very happy if Robert Frost had accidentally given us a Lothlorien reference. Luckily, the elves gave them boats so they could come down the river a little further. But then the roads did diverge. Two roads diverged a week and a half after the Yellowwood, is what we've learned from tonight's reading. But they have diverged. And now we have to make that call. Grievous is our loss, says Legolas, referring to the loss of Gandalf. Yet, yet we must needs make up our minds without his aid. Why cannot we decide and so help Frodo? Let us, let us call him back and then vote. I should vote for Minas Tirith. And Gimli says, yes, me too. Also Minas Tirith. But that's not what's important. It was hard for me to leave Lothlorien. And I am just now understanding that I'm going to go with Frodo whatever he decides to do. If he doesn't take a vote, doesn't matter. If he decides to go recklessly on to the east, I'm going with him. That's it. And Legolas says, yes, me too. I would vote for Minas Tirith, but if Frodo wants to go east, I'll go with him. And then Aragorn makes the strategic case, right? Aragorn says, well, look, we don't all need to go. It's going to be as bad for eight as it would for three or two or one alone. Like numbers are not going to save the day here. Moving in force is not the answer. We can't protect Frodo from things that he might meet in Mordor. Doesn't matter how good we are. Doesn't matter how strong we are. If Frodo meets armed opposition in the borders of Mordor or in, you know, you know, in the shadow of Barad-dûr itself on the, on the flank of Mount Doom, if Frodo meets with like armed opposition, there's nothing we can do. We're not helping him then. We're accompanying him, but we're not aiding him. And perhaps we might better be able to contribute by going to Minas Tirith, by fighting the fight in Gondor proper. So then Aragorn proposes his solution. Sam would go with Frodo, Gimli would go with Frodo, he would go with Frodo. Legolas, Boromir, Merry, and Pippin, he's splitting the fellowship right down the middle here. And I'm uncertain about why he would split Gimli and Legolas, why he wouldn't take Legolas with him into Mordor rather than Gimli. I'm not entirely sure of Aragorn's motivation here, but that's his proposal. That's what he wants to do. Yeah, yeah. Spies, not soldiers from Mount Doom, says Heroes and Bards. Very good, yes. Yes. Good. Uh, some people are putting together a Spotify playlist. You need to share that with me so that I can tweet that out. That's a thing of wonder. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, uh, let's keep on going here. <laughs> we still have two more slides to get to. Can you believe it? I should say, too, by the way, that the reason that I am suspicious of Boromir, I'm just now realizing that I didn't actually put it on a slide, is that when Boromir returns from talking with Frodo, he lies. He lies when he tells the others that he talked with Frodo a while and that was it. And Frodo wandered off to think and, don't know, it could be anywhere. Why does he lie to the fellowship? 
is this pride? Is this him protecting his own name and the name of his family, the name of the man of Gondor, the true man of Gondor? Or is he covering up for the fact that he was claimed by the ring, that he was corrupted by the ring? Is he still in that moment corrupted by the ring? He doesn't try and justify his action is the thing. So that's, you know, one point of good in, in Boromir's favor in that moment. But yeah, he does lie about it. Shame, says Alan. Shame over his lapse, says Toby. Yes. Nikki says because he knows he messed up big time and he's ashamed. Yes. Shame seems to be pretty, pretty thorough there. Good. Good. All right. <laughs> Let's uh, keep going because we've got our got our wonderful restoration of, of justice and camaraderie here right at the end of this session. We are not going to have time for questions. I'm terribly sorry, you guys. Um, maybe I'll take a couple if there are. Um, let me see. Are there questions in the live? My screen here is being covered up. Okay, there are a couple of, of, of questions here in the live thing that I'll try and get to. Let's see what we can do. So uh, worried about Frodo, the, the party spreads out. They go searching for Frodo and Aragorn runs up Amon Han and Sam sets out with him, but of course can't keep up with, with Strider as he ascends Amon Han on his long Numenorean legs. Whoa, Sam Gamgee, he said aloud. Your legs are too short, so use your head. Let me see now. Boromir isn't lying, that's not his way, but he hasn't told us everything. Something scared Mr. Frodo badly. He screwed himself up to the point sudden. He made up his mind at last to go. Where to? Off east, not without Sam. Yes, even without his Sam. That's hard, cruel, hard. Sam passed his hand over his eyes, brushing away the tears. Steady, Gamgee, he said. Think if you can. He can't fly across rivers and he can't jump waterfalls. He's got no gear, so he's got to go back to the boats. Back to the boats. Back to the boats, Sam, like lightning. Sam turned and bolted down the path. He fell and cut his knees. Up he got and ran on. He came to the edge of the lawn of Parthgallan by the shore where the boats were drawn up out of the water. No one was there. There seemed to be cries in the woods behind, but he did not heed them. He stood gazing for a moment, stock still, gaping. A boat was sliding down the bank all by itself. With a shout, Sam raced across the grass. The boat slipped into the water. Coming, Mr. Frodo! Coming! Called Sam and flung himself from the bank, clutching at the departing boat. He missed it by a yard. With a cry and a splash, he fell downward into deep, swift water. Gurgling, he went under, and the river closed over his curly head. An exclamation of dismay came from the empty boat. A paddle swirled and the boat put about. Frodo was just in time to grasp Sam by the hair as he came up, bubbling and struggling. Fear was staring in his round brown eyes. Up you come, Sam, my lad, said Frodo. Now take my hand. Sam Gamgee. Sam Gamgee, ladies and gentlemen. Your legs are too short, so use your head. Let me see now. Boromir isn't lying. That's not his way, but he hasn't told us everything. Sam absolutely has Boromir's number at this point. Something scared Mr. Frodo badly. He screwed himself up to the point sudden. He made up his mind at last to go where to off east. Not without Sam. Yes, even without his Sam. That's hard. Cruel hard. He knows what Frodo's thinking. He knows what Frodo's going to do. He's surprised that Frodo has come to the decision so immediately. He screwed himself up to the point sudden. He knows that something must have happened to drive Frodo to the point of making his choice. But he's not surprised by the choice. He knew that this is what Frodo was going to do. So then he passes his hand over his eyes. Think if you can, he can't fly across rivers. He can't jump waterfalls. He's got no gear. He's got to go back to the boats, back to the boats, back to the boats. Sam, like lightning. The repetition there of back to the boats just struck me this, this time as I was reading the, the passage right before tonight's session. Um, it just struck me that the, the triplicate repli uh, repetition of back to the boats reminds me of his 
first moment of, of almost poetry right back at the beginning of the book, that the elves are departing from Middle-earth. They're sailing, sailing, sailing. And now Sam racing back to the boats. He sees the boat beginning to move out into the lake without any assistance, apparently, without anyone being aboard. And he jumps for it and he misses by a yard, by three whole feet. He misses and splashes into the water. This is Sam who hates boats. Sam who is suspicious of the water. But so valiant is he in his defense of his master Frodo that he will take any necessary action. I know that there is a lot of love for Sam in the chat here. Sam's dialogue is incredibly lyrical, says Heroes and Bards, which I like a lot. Yes, I think you're completely right. He is far closer to, uh, to poetry. He's, he's far less prosy than we may have believed. Yes. Love how Sam talks to himself, says Jared. Totally different than when Boromir talks to himself. He's processing. You're absolutely right, Jared, right? We get three characters talking to themselves in quick succession. Boromir talks to himself, albeit under the influence of the ring. Frodo talks to himself, kind of explaining the decision that he has made, the, the, the decision that he has come to. But then Sam, you're right, is kind of working the problem, right? He's kind of chattering away to himself, chuntering away to himself as he's trying to figure out what it is that he's going to do. And he's right. Sam is batting a thousand here. Everything that he says is right. Your legs are too short, so use your head. Let me see now. Boromir isn't lying. That's not his way. He hasn't told us everything. Something scared Mr. Frodo badly. All the way through to back to the boat, Sam, like lightning. He's right. He knows what he's talking about. And he trusts, of course, in his... Well, it's interesting. Your legs are too short, so use your head. He does reason his way through the problem here, right? He does reason his way through... Um, through unpicking Frodo's action here, Frodo's motivation here. But then it's not his head. It is not his head that drives him across the broad lawn of Parthgalan down to the shore as the boat is moving out. It is not Sam's head that leads him to leap recklessly for, for the prow of the boat as it slips back into the water. It's his heart. It's his duty. It's his sense of himself and his place in the world. There is a nobility to Sam Gamgee. For all that he is working class, the nobility of his own role, of his duty, of his honor, these things are profound. These things matter. And of course, a love too for Frodo. Yes, it's his heart, says Princess Ostrich in all caps. Yes. <laughs> Jared says, Samsplaining greater than mansplaining. Yes, Samsplaining, says Shane. I think we all need some Samsplaining. I, I must confess that when I am beset with a problem, particularly when it's a technical problem, when I'm, you know, building websites or, or working on podcast stuff, when I'm, when I'm I, I tend to think through the problem and kind of talk aloud to myself in exactly the way that Sam does. So I'm, I'm enormously charmed by that, I must admit. So then Frodo pulls him up out of the boat and says, now, Sam, said Frodo, don't hinder me. The others will be coming back at any minute. If they catch me here, I, will have to, I shall have to argue and explain, and I shall never have the heart or the chance to get off. But I must go at once. It's the only way. Of course it is, answered Sam, but not alone. I'm coming too, or neither of us isn't going. I'll knock holes in all the boats first. Frodo actually laughed. A sudden warmth and gladness touched his heart. Leave one, he said. We'll need it. But you can't come, you can't come like this without your gear or food or anything. Just hold a moment, I'll get my stuff, cried Sam eagerly. It's all ready, I thought we should be off today. He rushed to the camping place, fished his pack out of the pile where Frodo had laid it when he emptied the boat of his companion's goods, grabbed a spare blanket and some extra packages of food and ran back. So all my plan is spoiled, said Frodo. It's no good trying to escape you. But I'm glad, Sam. I cannot tell you how glad. Come along, it is plain we were meant to go together. We will go and may the others find a safe road. Strider will look after them. I don't suppose we shall see them again. Yet we may, Master Frodo. We may, said Sam. 
so Frodo and Sam set off on the last stage of the quest together. Frodo paddled away from the shore, and the river bore them swiftly away down the western arm and past the frowning cliffs of Tolbrandir. The roar of the great falls drew nearer. Even with such help as Sam could give, it was hard work to pass across the current at the southern end of the island and drive the boat eastward toward the far shore. At length they came to land again upon the southern slopes of Ammon Law. There they found a shelving shore, and they drew the boat out high above the water and hid it as well as they could behind a great boulder. Then, shouldering their burdens, they set off, seeking a path that would bring them over the grey hills of the Emin Mole and down into the land of shadow. And so ends the Fellowship of the Ring. Obviously, the camaraderie between Frodo and Sam is beautiful, is profound. He's ready to go. Sam is always ready to go. But I must go at once. It's the only way. Of course it is, answered Sam. But not alone. I'm coming too, or neither of us isn't going. Neither of us isn't going, says Sam in his wonderfully grammatically complete way. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty adorable, yes. Meant to go together, says Joseph. Hmm, yes, meant to go together. It reminds me of Elrond's If I Understand Aright All That I Have Heard. Meant to go together is... Gosh, that must be as close as we've seen Frodo come to this kind of talk, right? To this kind of, of implication of destiny, implication of fate here. Yeah, this is very profound and powerful. But Frodo has clearly come to this decision. He has seen the influence of the ring. He has, he has kind of filtered this decision through all of his many experiences. And now he and Sam will progress together alone. Yeah. This bit is as warm, says Danielle, as the Boromir scene was creepy, even with the walk into shadow. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a bard says that his mother always said it was a sign of intelligence talking to oneself. Good. I'll take that. Excellent. I'll, I'll completely accept anything that affirms my own habits, as we all will. Yes. It's only bad when you start answering back Gollum style, says Nikki. <laughs> Shane says how awful it would have been if the two towers in Return of the King were not picked up and if this were the ending. Oh, my gosh. So we can talk a little about the ending, right? We, I, I've kind of generally nodded towards the idea that the Fellowship of the Ring is is bracketed front and back with Frodo's decisions, or actually that Frodo's decisions make a beautiful structural three-beat. Frodo's choices make a beautiful structural three-beat. We get the beat at the beginning of the first book, we get the beat at the beginning of the second book, and now the beat at the end of the second book, right? That, that's pretty geometrically perfect in the heart of this. That's that's at Bag End at Rivendell and now here... Um, here at uh, Amonhen and Parthgallon. So Frodo's choices kind of define the shape of this thing. And that's going to be particularly powerful as we move into the Two Towers, into the third and fourth books of, of The Lord of the Rings, because individual choice and individual calling will be that much more important. Now we're going to expand. The scope of the narrative expands precipitously at this point, right? This is, it's interesting there that we get, uh, so Frodo and Sam set off on the last stage of the quest together. I mean, they kind of do. Let me call up, actually. Since we're running just a little late anyway, let me... Uh, indulge myself here and we'll take a look at the uh at the lotr project map and then we will um <laughs> if i turn off events again i don't know why events are enabled by uh by standard oh and some of the paths are enabled too let's turn all of those off and i will share that with you guys here we go so we can see here the Shire all the way in the west, okay? So we've got uh, Mickle Delving here, we've got Hobbiton here, Buckland, the Old Forest, the Barrowdowns. Brie, gosh, doesn't this all feel like a million years ago? Doesn't this feel like it's just been forever? Let me cancel that out too. So uh, actually, I can 
turn that on, I guess, and we can we can look at uh, Frodo and Sam's journey here. So we can see, uh, yes, from Hobbiton south through the Shire to the Old Forest to Bree through the Midgewater Marshes up to uh, Weathertop. I don't know why this continues to scroll down. That's terrible. <laughs> Frustrating. Okay, I'll just hold it here. The last bridge through the Trollshaws to the Ford of Bruin into Rivendell south. The, you know, accidental journey up toward Carathras. That was no good. So we came back down. Then we came through Moria, down the Silverload, through Lorien, here through Caras uh, Galathon. You can see there in the southeastern part of Lorien, all the way down the Anduin. We come all the way down here. This is where we break. This is the point right here. I guess I can kind of cover that up. That beat there that you can see right at the bottom of your screen. That's the point where we break. And if I turn off their path and scroll out just a little bit, you will see, hey, we are really close to Mount Doom now. The distance from here to Mount Doom is what? The distance from Hobbiton to Bree? Well, okay, further than that, but not much further than that. Maybe the, the distance from uh, Bree to the last bridge there, you know? We've covered a lot of ground. We've covered by far most of the journey. But now the pace of the narrative is going to slow. Now things are going to be that much more complicated, that much more challenging, now that we have kind of fragmented our narrative. Yeah, good. Oh my gosh, Joseph says, my wife first started reading The Fellowship when she was like 10, didn't know there were more books, got to the bridge at Kazadum and had to, had to be stopped. It was only several years later she learned there were more books. That's terrible. That's absolutely terrible. Wow. Okay. Let's, uh, let me cancel that here, and we'll look at our slide for next week. Next session, The Two Towers, Book 3, Chapters 1 and 2, The Departure of Boromir and the Riders of Rohan. We're going to do that at 10 p.m. Eastern next Thursday. That's October the 19th, 2017. I do apologize for the fact there was no there and back again last week. Sometimes life intrudes in unfortunate and uncomfortable ways, but hey, we're now back on our regular schedule. Um, let's take a quick look at some questions. I'm, I'm just, oh, also our poll. Is Boromir sincere after he falls? I asked. 16 people voted out of the live audience, and all 16 said yes. Okay, so we're going for sincerity in that moment, and then shame when he returns to the fellowship. That seems to be where we are. That That is at least a comprehensive reading. I can, I can understand that. That is a close textual reading. Fair enough. We will make that the official there and back again position. This is nothing if not a democracy. Okay, a question from Shane. Is Mordor the anti-fairy because it stands... Let me... Uh, Cancel that slide there. Is Mordor the anti-fairy because it stands in opposition, or is Gondor the anti-fairy because it is so mundane? Gosh, um, well, I mean, practically, if, if you're talking, um, if you're talking functionally within the mythopoeic structure of, of Tolkien's Middle Earth, I suppose the Shire is the anti-fairy. The Shire is possessed of its own magic, but it is a distinct magic. I mean, if you're arguing mundanity versus, you know, a magically infused environment, then Bree is probably, Bree is probably the least magical place that we've encountered so far, right? Bree is probably, that's where magic comes to an absolute minimum because it doesn't even have like the protective, odd, you know, homely, powerful magic of the Shire. Bree is just pretty stark, Everything else is more magical than Bree, but I would argue that, yeah, it's it's the Shire, it's modernity and civility, and, and as we'll address right at the end of the book, the coming of industry that marks the Shire out as the anti-fairy. And remember that, that for Tolkien, I suppose... Um, Fairy and, and the mortal realm, and this is true for, for fairy stories in general. This is true back to, you know, the medievalists. Um, uh, it isn't fair to say, fairy is not a place, okay? Fairy is not distinct from the world. Fairy coexists with the world. 
So it is appropriate for there to be a certain kind of natural magic and the, the sense of, of fairy lingering in the world. And I'm not sure that I've really answered your question there. If we're talking about fairy in terms of elves, ah, well... That's interesting because the fate of elves is to decline and to depart, right? The fate of elves is not to linger in Middle-earth, but to leave Middle-earth. Arguably, it is Gondor. Not because it is mundane, but because it is the province of... Okay, Mordor here is an aberration. Mordor is an anomaly. Mordor is not what is intended. That is not to say that Mordor was not predicted by, by Iluvatar, by, by, you know, God in, in the, the song that forged the world uh, or that, that, that previewed the world, I suppose. It, that rebellion was understood and, and was necessary. But ultimately, the fourth age of the world, you know, we're in the, the year 1319 of the third age now. Um, and the fourth age of the world is the age of man. We'll get to that at the end of the return of the, uh, the end of the return of the king. But uh, in in that sense, yes, in that sense, the ascendancy of man is going to eclipse the elves. But even those men are still declining too, right? So it's kind of a double insult. It's kind of a double fall there. Um, Sam asks theory: What would happen if it was Legolas that tried to take the ring from Frodo? <sighs> I'd imagine pretty much the same. I. I'd, the problem is that we don't have a strong grasp on Legolas's character at this point. He is very much at this point in the narrative token elf, and that is going to change when we get into uh, when we get into the two towers. Um, but for all the development that we've got of Gimli, we've actually had very little development of Legolas. What would Legolas be like if he tried to take the ring? Well, okay, let's ask this question, and that might give us some insight here. Why does the ring work on Boromir? Because Boromir is the weakest of the party. We know that the dwarves are less susceptible to the rings of power than men are. Uh, yes, dwarves are less susceptible than men are. And we know that elves are even less susceptible than dwarves are. Boromir is the weak link. Aragorn is kind of redeemed both by virtue of his connection, his personal connection to the wise, his personal experience with, with the wise, the counsel that he has, has been given, and also the fact that he's the king. He's exceptional. Which may make him more likely to be tempted in some instances, I suppose, but specifically for Aragorn, less likely to be tempted. So I'm not sure what would happen if Legolas tried to take the ring. Um, would he have been more successful? Possibly, though it is interesting that when Frodo lists, you know, those that he trusts, Legolas and Gimli, as I said, are not among them. So I don't know. The real question is, would Frodo have surrendered the ring to Aragorn if Aragorn had asked for it? And he might, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. That's, that's a really tough one. Yeah. Um, what is Frodo's equivalent of Bilbo's Baggins-Took dynamic, says Joseph? Um, well, Frodo doesn't have quite that same dynamic. And we did talk about this very fleetingly right back at the beginning of our discussion of the Fellowship of the Ring when we were talking about the influence that Bilbo has had on the next generation. Bilbo ultimately managed to integrate his Baggins and Took sides, right? He, he managed to find a balance point between those two where he wasn't he wasn't minimizing either of them in order to accommodate the other, but was in fact fully realizing both of them. He had found, I guess, a balance point is, is the wrong metaphor, right? He had found a harmony between them, both of them full and rich and resplendent, but both of them coexisting and making him greater than he would otherwise be. And we talk about his influence on Hobbit society. Now we've got Merry and Pippin and Sam. He teaches Sam to read. He teaches Sam stories of dragons and of elves. That was not a part of Hobbit culture prior to Bilbo's adventure into the East. So Frodo, I think, is in some sense the, the 
lucky inheritor of that. He doesn't have to see a compromise between a Took side and a Baggins side because he gets to be both. He gets to be both because Bilbo found out how to be both and, and was, as his father figure, kind of instrumental in his upbringing. Moreover, he's surrounded by a community of young hobbits that understand that this is the case. Again, go right back to the beginning of the first chapter of The Fellowship of the Ring, the scene in the pub, and then the, the beginning of the second chapter, the scene in the other pub, the older guard and the, and the younger generation there, um, the gaffer and, and uh, the old Sandyman, whose name I forget, and also the stranger, and then, of course, um, Sam and Ted Sandyman and the others. Seeing that opposition, that gives us a sense of how Hobbit society has has moved forward. We're kind of more open now in some senses, and that's going to be both good and bad, too. So uh, Frodo's equivalent of Bilbo's, uh, Bilbo's Baggins took dynamic, he just doesn't have one, I think. Is there an internal conflict at the heart of Frodo? No, not really. Not really. Frodo is facing hopelessness. Frodo doesn't have Bilbo's luxury, remember. Frodo doesn't have the, the opportunity to believe that this is unnecessary or to believe that this is just, just an adventure, quote unquote. Frodo knows the stakes. He understands what it is that he's undertaking. And I do think that this is one of the reasons why people are generally less attracted to Frodo as a character than we are to Bilbo, than we are to Sam, than we are to Marion Pippin oftentimes. Frodo... I don't know anyone who would argue for Frodo being their favorite character in The Lord of the Rings. I don't know anyone who would argue for Frodo being in their top three favorite characters. And now, of course, because I'm saying that on the internet, I know that some of you, inevitably, just by, by the law of averages, will actually love Frodo the most out of everyone. But he is less internally conflicted and thus less engaging to the reader, I think. Um, there are moments, certainly, where Frodo shines. There are moments of greatness from Frodo, but he's not conflicted in the same way um, as uh, as Bilbo was, yeah. Um, let me see, last question uh, from Sam. Is the eye just a metaphor for the Dark Lord? Woof. Uh, no, not just a metaphor, right? It doesn't seem to be the case that the eye is a giant flaming eye atop Barador the way that it is depicted in the movies and the way that it is depicted in every other kind of visual representation of the Lord of the Rings ever since. But there is an eye. Remember, we discussed this last time. Frodo has had a, a glimpse of that, that lidless eye ringed in flame. That is something. That is like a metaphor for the Dark Lord. Um, I, if you're asking, is, is the eye, uh, are the eye and Sauron the same? Are they one and the same? Yes, they absolutely are. The eye is not a separate, you know, uh, um, servant of Sauron or a functionary of Sauron or even like a kind of abstracted, you know, metatronic kind of uh, uh, embodiment of some, some aspect of Sauron. No, the eye is Sauron. The eye is Sauron's attention. That's what that means. But is there a literal eye atop Barador? No, no, not in the books, I think. Not at least in the way that it's represented in, in the movie. Okay, let's uh, call it quits there. Lego Batman, says Angela Lurie. I was just thinking about Lego Batman. I love Sauron in Lego Batman. It's the greatest thing. Voldemort and Sauron team up with Ray Harryhausen's The Kraken. If you've never seen Lego Batman, A, go and watch the Lego Batman movie. Then B, head on over to commonroomradio.com and find the episode of Excelsior where I discussed the Lego Batman movie with Sarah Cade Pizant and the wonderful Vinton Bain. That was a really fun discussion for like an hour and a half in which we somehow managed to avoid quoting every single line that was in the movie, but we did our level best. It's a very fun and silly discussion. And yeah, you guys, Sauron shows up in the third act and is actually put to devastating the good use. He is named Sauron in the movie. Um, 
in the Lego Batman movie, but that is a joke, apparently. The joke is that the character, I'm not going to spoil plot beats, but the joke is that the character who calls him Sauron doesn't care about him at all and so deliberately mispronounces his name. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about that, but that's where we are on the Lego Batman movie. Who knew that we would start the evening by talking about my, oh, look, you can see my uh, Marauder's Map mug has now faded entirely. Mischief managed indeed because my tea has gone cold and I didn't drink any of it. That's where we are. But who knew that we would start with Harry Potter and end with the Lego Batman movie? It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you all tonight. Guys, thank you so much. If you are around tomorrow at... 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. And if you support uh, Point North Media over on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia, then you can get access to the first episode of the brand new Point North Book Club in which I am discussing the first eight chapters of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, one of my all-time favorite novels, a novel that I have read honestly, honestly, countless times. For the longest time when I was in high school, I had a copy of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy on my desk. And whenever I was bored or distracted or taking a break from homework or waiting for my next turn in, I don't know, Civilization 2 or whichever video game it was that I was playing at the time, I would pick up The Hitchhiker's Guide, flip to a random page and start reading. I love that book. I am discussing that over the course of, I think, the next four weeks over on the Point North Book Club. To get access to that and a ton of other stuff besides, head on over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia and by pledging your support, you make it possible for me to do more of this, more of the work that I do, more shows, more live broadcasts, better video. We're getting very close to the threshold for uh, for better broadcast video quality, which will be wonderful. I'm really excited to uh, start really reworking the back end of the studio here and making these, these live shows look and hopefully sound a little better. Just kind of improve that experience for you, particularly for those of you who are for some reason watching me on some kind of large TV. Occasionally people send me pictures of, of my face on a large TV over a fireplace, over a mantle, whatever. That's a little disconcerting, but, you know, by all means do. I mean, by all means do send me those things. That would be particularly great, especially if you can pause it at a moment when I'm making a dumb face, which seems to be, you know, most of the moments. It's fine. It's all fine. That will do it, though, for this week's session. I will be back next week with the first two chapters of The Two Towers, The Departure of Boromir and The Riders of Rohan. I will talk to you all again very soon. Until then, thanks for joining me, and take care. Bye. <laughs>